Hi guys, you're listening to the Morning After the Life Before podcast. I'm Jack Schofield. And I'm Sam Corty. And the idea of this podcast is we're going to invite guests on to talk about their unheard stories behind their success and their character. We want to listen to their mischievous childhoods, bumpy educations and stories that don't quite fit the stereotypical model. The idea is we're going to wake up to find out what really happened behind the scenes and stories that never quite made it to social media. This podcast is currently supported and produced by the team at 226 Photography. Welcome back to this week's podcast. How are you getting on, Jack? Yeah, I'm good. Not a lot's been occurring. We've now racing has actually started. I talked about it going to start last week, so there've been a few time trials and stuff around, which has been cool. Um, so looking forward to doing some racing. Got some cool photo shoots coming up with um, a couple of athletes, and I've got this. The wedding I spoke about is um, in a couple of days' time with just the five guests. So we'll see how that one goes down. But yeah, otherwise nothing new. Just a bit of work, a bit of bike riding, and some rubbish weather. How about you? What have you been doing? Well, I actually had my final day of training today. I feel like I've done a lot of training for absolutely nothing. Um, we haven't really raced. Uh, season's been cut short, so going home tomorrow, which I can't wait because I haven't seen my parents or family for seven months since Christmas. You were meant to be um, travelling somewhere exciting today, right? Yeah, this was the day that we were supposed to be flying out to Tokyo for the Olympics. It's a bit... It's an odd one, really, because I... I, to be honest, I hadn't really been like keeping track of. But I think well, as soon as it was abandoned or postponed, I kind of tried to forget about it a bit. But yeah, there's been a few Instagram posts that have reminded me. Yeah, it's a weird feeling, to be honest. Yeah, but I, I mean, fingers crossed this time next year, I'll be on, the, be plane, on the plane. So yeah, hopefully. Right, would you like to introduce this week's wonderful guest? Yeah, I'm mega excited about this one. We've got Sam Brocky. Uh, he's a really good friend of mine. I met him a few years ago through a mutual friend of ours, Pete Curran. He's a PhD student at Cambridge and a part-time tech consultant for British Cycling. And so he does some really exciting work with all the guys at the Velodrome, cutting-edge research. It's really cool to hear him talk about the sort of some of the things he works on, the ones he's allowed to talk about. Just nice to talk to him. I've been on training camp with him a few times, so you hear some stories about that. And um, we've got the same triathlon coach now. He used to be a very good cyclist back in his uni days. And then, um, yeah, we hear about the challenges he's he's faced and stuff. Yeah, this is a really, a really personal in, like chat that we had with Sam. I think I don't didn't personally know him beforehand. And from the outside, he's had a very successful and quite smooth journey however we really did unearth some hidden personal challenges that he's had to face head on and we were just really fortunate and we thank Sam a lot about how honest he was in this chat about his struggles with food and mental health so we hope you enjoy the episode there we go we're live the cameras are rolling are they actually rolling because I'm currently sat on my bed with no trousers on. <laughs> so, Sam Brocky, it's good to have you on the podcast. So we'll start from the outlet. You're both called Sam, so I'm going to refer to you as Brock because that's what I usually call you. Then we don't get any confusion. That sounds perfect. Sweet. So let's let's get stuck in. So tell us about your early life. Where you're from? Your family? Like growing up? Like what did that What did that look like for you? Born in Oxford. Uh, born and raised. And I've got uh, three sisters, so I'm one of one of four siblings. So kind of large family. I'd say very typical, nice, stable upbringing. 
just you know in usual suburbia um <laughs> went to a went to like a bog standard um state school when i say bog standard it probably wasn't actually so bog standard compared to a lot of state schools <laughs> yeah um, what do you mean you didn't have fights every day in the playground i'm pretty sure pretty sure someone got got stabbed in the neck with a screwdriver <laughs> oh well, that's pretty good like year eight but you know obviously i was at chess club when that happened so where did you sit in the age range of your sisters so i'm number three of four elder sister lucy's four years older than me beth's two years older than me and then kate is four years younger than me did you all get along you can't really beat sisters up can you i don't think you can admit to it in this day and age <laughs> <laughs> But I think siblings of all ages and, and genders have their, their fair share of fisticuffs. So yeah, we we had a bit of a bit of rough and tumble, but nothing outrageous. How many tea parties did you have to go to, and how often did you get your nails? Braided? How many tea parties? <laughs> Definitely had my hair braided at one point when I was a bit younger. For no reason other than all of my sisters had their hair braided and I didn't want to feel left out. So I got my mum to braid my hair and it didn't go very well because I had quite short hair. The hair braids basically didn't really flop down under their own weight. So I basically had this hair <laughs> braid in that just stuck out of my head at 90 degrees and looked a bit stupid. You were trying to be a unicorn from an early age. Exactly, yeah. That came out pretty quickly. I just have imi- images of Milo from the tweenies in my head. That's why I imagine you looking like. From the tweenies? How old, how old are you, Sam? I swear the tweenies was like way, way, way after my time. I'm 27 and can probably still sing the theme tune to the tweenies. Go on then. No. <laughs> Last podcast, I said that I'd go to the co-op in a bikini. I'm not singing. <laughs> I have that on tape. That made the cut. <laughs> I am not singing the Tweenies theme tune. Did your sisters fight amongst each other? We were we were very friendly. We were all super competitive with each other. And by that, I mean I was super competitive with my siblings and it may have not been reciprocated. <laughs> there was always this thing where if someone did something, you, you had to one-up them. The further down in the family you are, kind of the more difficult it gets. And things like driving tests, like that was that was competitive. Like, couldn't afford to fail your driving test. I think when Kate failed her driving test for the for the third time, we it was it was something that was never never joked about and laughed about <laughs> amongst the family. I think I think now maybe we can we could get away with some with some gentle gentle banter <laughs> about it. But what did you want to be when you grew up? When I was really young, I wanted to be a stuntman. <laughs> Nice. I've seen you pull some pretty good stunts, to be fair. What's that in reference to? When you jumped off a six-foot drop at the edge of the road in Lanzarote on a push bike. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think there was much jumping. Just some Spanish driver pulls up along next to me and starts yelling. And I was like, what do you want? Like, I'm on the edge of the road. I'm I'm not riding stupid. And he was was like, just yelling at me. I was like, I don't speak Spanish. Go away. And he's like... (laughs) Your friend, off, off, look back, you're just nowhere to be seen. <laughs> you just like, it was, I have to say, the wind was like 27, 28 miles per hour. It was awful to ride in. We came back and you just, yeah, sorry, mate, just got blown off the road. <laughs> I was, it was, it was windy in my defense. <laughs> Four days in bed. <laughs> I'm not the best bike, bike handler, but it was quite windy. So 
I'll cut myself some slack on that one. <laughs> Still finished the ride, though. You did, you did. After Stuntman, <laughs> what was next? <laughs> After that, I wanted to be a pilot. Oh, nice. So I was in the Air Cadets, like every cool kid was. That was an interesting experience. After that, I thought that I would, I'd go and join the, the RAF or, or the Army or the Navy or something and, and try and become a pilot through that. Then I ended up getting glasses when I was beginning my GCSEs and then that made things difficult because at the time there were pretty stringent restrictions on how your eyesight had to be. And so that's when I kind of began to get onto the path that I eventually ended up following which was uh, to go to uni and do engineering. And so my thought process there was, you know, I like aeroplanes. So if I can't fly aeroplanes, I should do a degree in which I can learn about how they're designed and built. So did school, did maths and science come easy to you at school? Yeah, without without sounding too cocky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, only because in our last episode, obviously, we spoke to Tom and he's now working for Ferrari, but he um, just remembers putting in two, three times as much work as everyone else around him just to try and get to the same the same place. Definitely with maths. I never really felt challenged by it at all the whole way yeah. through school. Which makes sense as to what you're doing now. All of the stuff that didn't really require kind of huge volumes of like content learning yeah um more just more just like the aspects of it that were like yeah do you understand the concept and then crank the handle to get the results out yeah yeah did you have a smooth ride in school or was it pretty difficult no it was uh it was very easy yeah I, i grew up in in like north oxford so the kind of a lot of people at my school their parents were either like affiliated with oxford university or we're affiliated with the John Radcliffe Hospital, which is the, the big teaching hospital in Oxford. And you were big into music back then as well, right? You were going to be the next next member of some big boy band. My piano teacher basically said to me, you'll never be good enough to pass grade eight piano. And I'd kind of taken that as a, I took that as a, a big challenge, a basically. Gauntlet. I'm going to prove you completely wrong. And in hindsight, I reckon that was actually the, one of the most tactical plays ever in the history of the world. Because she knew the only way that I could be motivated to continue and practice properly was if someone sent me a challenge and told me that I couldn't do it. And then my competitive side would pull through. So anyway, fast forward like two years of just blood, sweat and tears of trying to learn grade eight piano. Finally went and sat my grade eight piano exam. And as prophesied by my piano teacher, <laughs> ended up failing. Oh no! Which was devastating. It was the was the first time I think the first time that I'd ever properly failed something. Um, <laughs> Slap in the face. Yeah, didn't didn't know what to do. wasn't Just wasn't part of the script. It's pretty clear that the whole way through you had a pretty like heavy work ethic. Like you obviously whether it's competitiveness or whatever you want to call it, like you clearly worked pretty hard at whatever you that like single-minded drive that we saw that we see i suppose in like athletes and businessmen and stuff like you obviously had that early what age did you know you wanted to go to cambridge i'd kind of decided probably at the end of year 11 that i was gonna apply to do aero engineering at uni i 
I really didn't think when I was initially thinking about where to go that Cambridge at all was going to be on my shortlist. And Oxford certainly like just wasn't even on the radar at any point ever having grown up there. Yeah. That that summer before you make your decisions, I think I'd sent off for a bunch of prospectuses from a load of different places and I'd kind of I had originally had my heart set on going to somewhere like Bristol. My AS level results ended up coming back and they were a fair bit better than I think I was originally expecting. A lot of the teachers at school kind of on results day came up to me and said, you know, like, oh, this is like really well done. You should think about applying to Cambridge. And I'd kind of thought, nah, I'm way too cool for Cambridge. <laughs> Only losers go there. <laughs> Which is really ironic because that absolutely wasn't the case. And I definitely was not too cool for anything. But clearly had high opinions of myself. I went to the interviews and I uh, gone for an interview at, at Bristol University and like really loved the place. So I, I'd pretty much had my heart set on the fact that I wanted to go to Bristol. Then I went to my Cambridge interview, and I think I think the fact that I was like so chilled out about it because in the back of my mind I was like I'm not going to go here made it quite an untraumatic experience. I think compared to how a lot of people find it. I think when the offer came through, I kind of realised like I've got the opportunity. I have to have to take it up somewhat reluctantly but but not really reluctantly like I was incredibly fortunate to have the opportunity and actually like when I went to visit that time after having got my offer I did feel like actually I can see myself coming here a lot more than I did originally when I went up the second time I went to Cambridge banging weather again and then it was sold there you go Lesson for all the kids out there. Don't pick your uni based on how the weather was the day you went to visit. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever consider Oxford or Cambridge, Jack? Uh, Yeah, so I basically, um, as I was saying, as the reason I asked Sam before was because for me it was a gauntlet. So I literally looked at the top. I knew I wanted to do architecture through sixth form. So looked at the top five on the, was, was it like the Guardian and someone else? You know, they had like the uni tables. Yeah. I just looked at the top five for architecture and was like, I'm going to apply to these five. The top at the time was Bath and then shortly after was London and then Cambridge was there. And then I think it was like Sheffield, Edinburgh, Manchester were all up there and can't remember which I applied to. Um, So I was then like, oh, well, I'm going to apply to Bath and Cambridge then because they're the two best ones. But then I just... Being kind of like from a very average, not average, I'm quite privileged, but like the north, you go to Cambridge and like some of these kids are just from a different planet, you know, and that really put me off when I sort of visited and I just wasn't, I just thought, oh, it's it's not for me. So I didn't apply. And then when we graduated from Bath, a lot of the guys did their part two at Cambridge, which is like this, your master of architecture. Um, so it was an option then as well, but obviously I decided I just wanted to ride my bike and be a postman. So um, didn't apply again for the second time. Not sure, not sure I'd quite have fitted in. But um, I obviously visited Sam a lot there and Pete, who our other friend there, and I do like the city. But yeah, I'm happy in the decision that I don't think I'd have quite settled at the university there. I think um, Bath was fairly intense as it was. I think Cambridge would have been another level for me. Yeah. On the surface, it felt like at Cambridge, everyone wanted to work at 110 miles per hour, which is fine because that was a case on our course at Bath. But there was an escape from that in that there were a lot of other courses that weren't 
quite as full on so you could have friends that actually weren't working for 18 hours a day for me that was so important to have people that didn't just ruin themselves all the time and when I visited Cambridge it just looked like everyone there was just like robots didn't switch off from their their course which I know is absolutely not true hence why I'm friends with like Brock because he's like me and that he's got lots of other things outside of the course he did but that's just the impression I got so it really put me off what other courses were you talking about (laughs) I'm not not naming names I know exactly what course you're talking about Jack because I think I was on it (laughs) (laughs) yours was a step (laughs) one of the courses what did what did you do Sam I did sport and exercise science sport and exercise science I did elite throwing and catching mate yeah (laughs) PE That's what I'm saying. I did elite elite throwing and catching. But it's like polar opposites, <laughs> isn't it? Because I remember on architecture, like from day one, they were like, oh, so you're doing architecture. And it wasn't just the, the lecturers and stuff. It was um, the people in the years above and like people on other courses in the years above. Like, oh, you're just not going to have a life for four years. You're not going to be able to do sport. You have to just do architecture for like 18 hours a day. And you sort of laugh it off. And then I was like, okay, you say I can't do sport and architecture, watch me. And they just made it so difficult for me from day one. They wouldn't give me dual career and I ticked all the boxes. Like I was racing internationally. I had every aspect I needed. I was well on top of like uni work and they were just so arsy with me because I was because my I, I did architecture, which is why I think I've got a bit of a sour taste from Bath because they say they're so inclusive for everyone, but they were not supportive of me at all when it came to sport and uni work. Do you think they like try and uphold this image that it is really difficult and, and tough and they almost like turn it into a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy and make, make it harder than it actually is? Yeah, and that's what keeps them at the top of or near the top of the leaderboards and why they produce some of the best students year on year because there are a select... like. 80% of our year were absolute animals. Like, they lived, breathed. Like, if you cut them, they'd bleed drawings of buildings, I swear. <laughs> People have sleeping bags in studio and work for 20 hours a day, seven days a week, like, six weeks in a row. Do you not eat? Do you not sleep? Like, what? Like, how are you doing this? It's just not human. And then, obviously, yeah, totally there's the outrageous. flip side of that in that, like so many people crash like we had the highest dropout rate of i'm pretty sure any course at bath it, it was well over 30 percent from first year because people just couldn't hack it that is just not healthy for them at all my experience was completely different because they were i think because it was a sport course it meant doing sport was so much easier and they were so much more accommodating like they let me split my final year and i sat exams in different countries and yeah had things moved around for me yeah i mean look at sports performance like one of their third year so they only did a three-year course one of their third year assignments was to produce a cv are you joking like we had to do that in year 10 not third year of uni i wish there was that was one of the requirements (laughs) for my phd i spent six weeks learning (laughs) ultimate frisbee exactly six weeks learning ultimate frisbee and then at the end of it i had to write a two thousand word essay and like like i speak as as if i'm super bitter like i'm obviously quite frustrated that they never supported me but that's what instilled the relentless work ethic i now have i'm really happy of all the skills i learned the people i shared the course with but i think if i was to actually go and have a chat with someone at Bath Uni I'd be like you are going about this the wrong way different people have got different priorities though don't they you know if you're working at a university then you are going to live and breathe 
that subject that you're teaching people aren't going to be thinking oh yeah you know pass your degree and and think about your extracurriculars yeah well i wasn't there just to pass like i was there i was there absolutely to give it the best i had but i always find this that the people around me that i see doing very well all seem to have an escape from it and the people that didn't have an escape 90 percent of them not all of them but the majority just burned out and by the end they were just like so unmotivated disillusioned like they just they'd lost that love that they had the first few years which was almost quite sad to watch and ruin their bodies in the process um, and it's just not good for your physical and mental health like a lot of people were in really quite a bad way when we graduated it was just not not a good environment for me that I didn't see that when I went for the interview at Bath you only see like the glamorous side and that side of it is what I saw in Cambridge but I think the reality is it was exactly the same at both. But you, because at uni, bro, you were like cycling and getting stuck into all other stuff as well, right? Team sport had never really been my thing. Basically, my hand and foot eye coordination leaves a lot to be desired. So then when I got to uni, I, I got properly obsessed with rowing initially. And uh, yeah, just like took it way too far at like such a low level as well, which is embarrassing. I ended up giving myself some pretty major injuries in that first year. I remember someone told me like, oh, you know, if you want to, if you want to get into the men's first boat, like you're going to have to do like a 620 2K when you come back for the holidays and like do the start of year testing. And I was like, okay, like obviously no point in, no point in doing it if I'm not in the, in the college first boat, like don't want to row with the mincers. So... <laughs> What? joined joined a joined a gym nearby and like went to went to this gym every single day over the christmas holidays every day i'd either go and do my interval session or if i wasn't doing the interval session i'd go and do like a 10k or like an 18k or something and just try and set a pb every single day <laughs> and did that for about three weeks over the christmas holiday that basically that stopped me rowing it's weird though how rowing does that to people isn't it like i don't know another sport where you would like where you'd like start a sport and then you'd like be literally like training at what in other sports would be quite a high level from day one but even i go to watch henley and i watch people that train twice a day six days a week to get knocked out on the Wednesday or Thursday, and you're like, "Why are you doing this? You're like, you're rubbish. Go home." Like, it's just like I don't. There's no end reward. I, I can't remember the last time I won a race. I can't remember the last time I won. Oh, how's your weekend? Like, oh yeah, we finished twelfth at Reading Regatta in the eight. Yeah, like, but um, I'm gonna get excited by that. But that's also at like a lot of levels. I have not won that many races. Yeah, but that's very different. <laughs> You're also, okay, I don't mean winning. I mean, like, there's got to be an end, like, going to cool places, entering cool races, that sort of thing, meeting cool people, doing cool stuff. Like, you don't have to win to do that. But to go to Reading Amateur every year and finish 12th when you train six days a week, like, you could go and race Ghent or somewhere like that and, like, have a really cool experience. Why do they nail themselves all the time? finish like yeah 18th at bristol uni head well they've brought out this new system where you get given points depending on how you do it national races i haven't even okay. made the top 20 on my points <laughs> but you don't race a lot right yeah but still and i'm trying to go to the olympics <laughs> uh, 
about that. According to this program, I'm not even in the top 20 in the country. But I don't think many of us are. <laughs> it's so skewed. And I agree. I'm not, I couldn't tell you the last time I won, won a race either. Like, it was a long time ago. But if I'd had anything, I've won two. But um, still, like, there's just, in rowing, people train so hard and do nothing. But in a way, it's good, you know? Like, it's people being active and it's, you know, people enjoying something. Exactly. But now we've got yeah. that out of the way. Let's take the piss out of them. <laughs> <laughs> they are just—they are just a special breed, aren't they? Those those rowers, it's just an absolute <laughs> aliens, swamp dwellers. And I think part of it is probably the fact that they've like the majority of them. <laughs> I love that we're now at the point we're referring to rowers as them. Even though Sam, <laughs> Sam is a professional rower and both me and you, Brock, rowed for a number of years. They're now them. <laughs> nah, they're all cavemen. <laughs> when did yeah. you come to the dark side then, Brock? When did you change across to the, for the cookies? So I tore my lat uh, on a couple <laughs> of occasions <laughs> during, during undergrad uh, whilst attempting to row got into cycling basically off the back of that because uh, i had a road bike and i'd kind of done a little bit of it and had, in, had enjoyed it um but didn't really do anything about it uh until christmas time of that year when i broke up with my long-term girlfriend and broke up with my girlfriend was walking back to my room from her room past the bike shop and ended up buying a tt bike <laughs> <laughs> Right. So hang on a second. So girls break up with their boyfriends and go and buy ice cream and watch a movie. And guys break up with their girlfriends and go and buy a bike. Vicky, if you're listening, I don't need a new bike. <laughs> In my defence, the bike shop was on my way home, so I didn't make a detour. Right. And, and I had been thinking about it a little bit. What, while she was breaking up with you? <laughs> yeah given all the free time I'd now have. How was Cambridge? Was it was it actually wild or was it tame? Because I know you'll tell us this honestly. I'd basically given up on my degree by the end of third year. I burnt out in terms of like how much I could be bothered to work, truthfully. Mum, if you're listening, I'm really sorry. <laughs> Doc, Dr. Altabar, if you're listening, screw you. Yeah, by, by my fourth year, basically, me and my housemate Dave couldn't really be asked to do much work anymore. And most of our mates had left and moved on basically my fourth year we pretty much just spent playing beer pong in our flat and going out many nights a week with random freshers that we made friends with in the college gym and it was an absolute blast how good were you at beer pong pretty damn good actually so a fun story we once went to a house party and played beer pong where sam courty managed to get the ball in her own cut we decided that we're like you're just gonna have to drink all of the drinks on the table for that and after that she doesn't remember a lot i'd got so close on so few occasions that you decided that it was going to be a thing to drink the whole table and then on the next shot straight in my own cup and actually what i do remember is throwing up on the path outside of the house elite athlete you just touched on your third year sort of burnout brock i know you had a lot of struggles um through that time do you want to just sort of elaborate and and maybe offer some insight on the, the other things you were going through behind the scenes sort of through that time of your life. Probably when I started cycling, seriously, to be honest, I, I think I began to, as a lot of cyclists probably do, struggle a bit with like weight and eating, develop some pretty 
unhealthy eating habits, which at the time I didn't really think much of. What it meant was that like during my final year or two of university, my body weight fluctuated quite massively up and down at, at different times. You know, I would quite easily see swings of 10 or more kilos in, in body weight over the course of a couple of months in, in both directions. In Japan, towards the end of my of my stay there, kind of noticed that there was probably something something wrong with my relationship with food in that I ended up losing a, a huge amount of, of weight over the space of a, a month or two and purely just out of, of obsession with food to the point where like I was really being strict and controlled with myself over what I was eating for, for no real reason. Also was finding that I would like have these binging episodes that I just could not control at all or I'd almost like go into a haze just eat anything and everything without really realizing it and when I so when I came back um and and started my PhD I think I was like beginning to be in a bit of a a a fragile place um but certainly over the course of, of that year between 2016 and 2017 um really began to to struggle with my my mental health were you trying to get into cycling at the time do you think that had a big impact on the sort of food side of things because that's something I've found since I started cycling especially like at uni I was fine but when I go into cycling I had a really unhealthy relationship with food because it's that like drummed into you that skinny is fast yeah you know you you look at a lot of very good cyclists are just like of that build where there's just not much to them you know and if you look at yeah i think my like my natural build or your natural build is actually you know a lot broader you, you just your frame wants to carry like a lot more muscle than you would see in like a in a cyclist and so like really the only way to cut weight is to just get like aggressively low body fat so yeah i i i think cycling probably had something to do with it i think it was also because i had like finished uni and that that summer after uni i'd like spent a lot of time going to the gym and so like when i moved to japan i was in good shape but then you know four months of eating like canteen food at the ski school where we were living and you know going out between three and five nights a week meant that like I did put on a lot of weight and so you know I'd arrived out there quite lean but was definitely pretty fluffy by the end of our ski season I had the realization that I was like oh this is I'm not happy with this I you know want to get back in shape um and then certainly like when I came came back to the UK one of the first things that we did with British Cycling was we we talked about trying to quantify body fat and weight and how that would in, influence uh, like CDA yeah I was going to say you're then where you're surrounded by some of the world's smallest athletes and working very closely with them and seeing them perform at this crazy level when you see professional cyclists in real life they're as small as children yeah they like weigh so little for you know how how tall they might be and yeah one of one of the first projects that i really got involved with after moving back to to cambridge from japan was we we talked about like quantifying how much of an aero advantage you think you could get from dropping a kilo say of, of body fat kind of as part of this discussion i was like oh this is like a perfect excuse for me to like aggressively diet again because i can 
like use myself as one of the experiment subjects and test my like drag area as I am now and then I'll like cut as much weight as I possibly can and I you know that will get us like really useful data for work but also like it will be like an excuse for me to to get as as skinny as I possibly can but I can pretend that it's for work you know and not because it's something that I, for some weird reason, want to do. Yeah. Yeah, as like part of that experiment, I I ended up dropping like another nine kilos as, as part of that. And I went from 86 down to 77 to the point where like you... You're what, like 6'4"? Six, 6'3", but did so in a really aggressive manner again. Uh, and it was like really not healthy. Certainly found that really bad habits that like I'd seen before were becoming more and more frequent you know so i was like mentally like if i could go if i could make myself go to bed hungry then i'd feel really good because i'd be like yeah that's um that's winning because you know that if i'm hungry then it means i'm in a calorie deficit yeah because when i so when i was training my first year of ironman i raced nice and wales they were my first two triathlons apart from like a couple of sprints when i was 17 and i came from 90 i was 94 kilograms uh, going into like Christmas was like okay well I'm gonna race in the mountains and I just remember trying to the same just trying to shift as much weight as possible and in Wales in September I raced at like 78 kilograms and I remember the same I would like ride to and from work I was living in Bath working in Bristol mm. it's about 27 28 kilometers it was on the Bath Bristol bike path and we'd I'd nail it to and from work I wouldn't eat beforehand I'd race any anyone and everyone even if they're on a mountain bike I saw it as like a big race get to my desk I'd have like a small bowl of cereal because I was like oh well if I eat less then I'll get skinnier and therefore faster lunch should have like a meal deal because in it would have like the number of calories on the back so I was like oh well it's only like 600 calories or whatever in the sandwich and a snack wouldn't eat anything else all afternoon would race back to bath not eat do an hour of swimming or running and then have like a plate of pasta for dinner so through the whole day I'd probably eaten about 1500 calories I'd be absolutely ravenous and be like today was a massive success like I've nailed training and yeah eaten I must have burned four or five thousand calories some days and eaten less than 2,000. And yeah, it's, I was exactly the same. Like you go to bed feeling like the day is a massive success because you kind of like, all you want to do is be as skinny as the people you see on Instagram or at races that are just like dancing up the mountains. Yeah. And I think like at that point, I'd I'd not spoken to anyone about eating disorders or anything. And I was kind of just like brushing everything that I was doing under the rug. And almost like there was yeah. there's so much like culture on YouTube and Instagram of these like people doing physique shows, like all of the my protein yeah, yeah, gym shark type stuff. And, you know, they're like counting macros and like cutting for, for show day or whatever. I was kind of just pretending that what I was doing was like completely normal. But actually, like in hindsight, I was going through periods of completely starving myself and then I would end up having these like completely uncontrolled binge episodes, which would either end with me making myself throw up or I would feel so guilty the next day that I'd be like, right, I'm like, I'm going to have to go out for like an eight hour bike ride to try and burn out, burn some of this off. Yeah. Just be like, because no one was talking about it ever. That was something that I just kept completely secret. I used to sneak around like in my own house 
from from my housemates like making sure that they wouldn't catch me snacking or or anything like I'd hate eating lunch in the office like I'd come home to to eat lunch just so like like no one could see what I was eating and stuff yeah, I always found it really difficult when you would because cycling's a massive culture of like you ride to the cafe stop you have some food like a cake and a coffee and then you ride home I always found it so difficult eating cake in front of other athletes it was only like two or three years later so I finished triathlon in the September to do my final year of uni um, and put another 12 kilograms back on that year and then it was only when I was starting to slip back once I graduated into like starving myself riding like 250 300 kilometers a day that I was like this probably isn't good for me and subconsciously you know at the time but you don't admit it to yourself and it was only when I hit that phase and sort of looked back that I could yeah talk to people about it and admit it yeah so I, I actually ended up having quite serious other mental health issues well completely intertwined with with all the eating stuff ended up getting diagnosed with clinical depression in October of 2017 and then in December 2017 severely went downhill in, in my mental state and was ended up take, being taken out of work by the doctor and, and my psychiatrist and ended up ended up having five months just completely off off work um, to, to recover. It wasn't until I actually went and saw a therapist that I realized that actually that my eating was also completely disordered. At the time it was like it yeah, it didn't really feel like a big deal, but in hi- like in hindsight, looking back now, it's just like it was such an obvious thing that probably led to so many of the problems that I ended up dealing with down the line. And I think just in sport in general, there's just not enough people aren't as open as as they should be in in talking about it, it's especially in the endurance sports where weight really does count. Yeah, I did an amazing workshop with um, Rini McGregor, the nutritionist, and she's doing some fantastic work to sort of like get it more vocalised. She said some really interesting statistics in that, like in the past, it's been seen that just sort of women have eating disorders, and then as she sort of starts to work, it's she's finding that it's actually quite balanced but guys are still finding it a lot harder to open up and seek help and i suppose anyone in that scenario struggles to seek help there's some good work now being done to try and help that but there's still a lot that needs to be done how do you think it affected sort of obviously you said you took time off but do you think it had any massive impact on your sort of work life and well before the time off and afterwards in the sort of recovery before before the time off it was i mean it was obviously like a a massively negative thing on the whole but i i found in a way actually i'd go through periods of, of being kind of incredibly disciplined and productive followed by you know periods of just like complete emptiness i'd really struggle with with motivation or or concentration uh in order to be able to do any work so i was like fluctuating massively there were huge peaks and troughs in terms of like whether i was getting stuff done from a from a work perspective or not i was working because i knew i had to and i was just churning the handle versus afterwards post therapy and getting myself a bit more back on back on track like the enjoyment came came back into work you know and i kind of realized what it was actually like to wake up in the morning and enjoy what you were doing on a on a day-to-day basis again so if you were listening to this podcast and the previous version of you what would you say to yourself now is there anything you think that could help that scenario that could have helped that scenario if someone had just said something differently to you my housemates at the time becker and lottie were absolutely incredible the entire kind of year period that, that we lived together i think they were probably more aware than i was that something wasn't quite right 
with me and they were like phenomenally supportive um great for like pushing me in in the direction of of seeking help between you know realizing that there was something substantially wrong and you know reaching out for for help myself i felt massively that it was like the weak thing to do you just need to man up and stop stop being weak go and deal with things yourself you don't don't need outside help and i remember thinking like actually if if i was going to tell anyone that i was having problems that it would just be incredibly embarrassing and like people would think way less of me if i could say something to myself three years ago it would just be absolutely don't be scared of saying that you're not okay and and reaching out for support because actually in in hindsight probably one of the the bravest things i've ever had to do yeah and from anywhere the support doesn't have to come from necessarily a specialist or you could just like in your case just chat to your flatmates or the people you feel most comfortable around you know your family your friends exactly yeah it's just like you know, being being open about it and not forcing yourself to try and deal with everything on your own. Because if the you know if the roles were reversed and it was one of your your mates or your family members or something that was you know struggling, you would absolutely want them to to reach out and and talk about it, and you wouldn't think anything anything less of them. No, of course Completely, not. Completely, yeah. Be be open. Talking is and being honest is one of the best things that you can do. It's really interesting that in the sense that you kind of just think that you're also the only person going through it and that by speaking out you like you said you said that you would feel weak other people must be going through the same things and that yet they're not complaining or saying anything about it and you look at like the top mm. riders and you just wonder how many of them have have been through a similar experience and once they get into the team they have a lot more help with their nutrition and it's all a lot more monitored but i guess the path from being a young rider and wanting to get there is probably there's probably so many people going through the same experiences but you even hear like cycling is quite bad for it but you even hear like when g talks in his podcast you know he talk, tells stories of how someone was eating a burger a few weeks ago and he had to go to bed hungry because he's training for the tour this year and whatever and right from the base level the messages are mixed and yeah it's quite interesting to see even the pros i'm not saying g's spreading the wrong messages that's i'm not sure he's a f- inspiration and helps a lot of people but yeah the way that some of them talk about it doesn't help the whole system sam what's your experience of being part of the gb program and of your experience with the other athletes and you know these kind of things that we've been talking about but also the support that you get from the squad around you i think we're good because we have a lightweight team where a squad where they have to be a certain weight to race and stuff, then you get a first-hand insight into how that is. For the rest of us that are all open weights or heavyweights, whatever you want to say, is it looks like hell. Not something that any of us would ever want to, to be a part of. And they are at the limit. They Their bodies would probably, like you say, naturally sit above what the weight is. So they do all have to lose weight to race. And they have that constant battle of, performance over meeting an expectation of what they're going to weigh in at especially in the team they do get a lot of help from the nutritionists and also from the snc coaches which was something i probably didn't really think about going into the team was how that helped them because muscle is well a lot heavier than fat and so 
their weights programs and stuff are all tailored tailored to help them and obviously some people gain muscle mass a lot easier than others and their programs designed to help the individual which for them is hugely beneficial and I think in terms of like just mental health in general is that it's definitely getting a lot better the governing body as a whole and becoming a lot more aware of what people are going through and the strains and the things that they don't see on the surface because with any sport there are injuries involved it's a lot easier for the coaches and well mainly the coaches to see a physical injury therefore any form of like mental problem kind of disregarded because they can't see anything in front of them and if they can't understand what's happening or what's going on then they kind of don't really believe it's it's there as with any athlete you've always got that shadow over you of that expectation that you are superhuman you're doing the sport and you're good at your sport because there is something about you that makes you better than other people I think people believe that that also is mentally so mentally we're just tougher and we don't go through the same sorts of hardships and things come really easy and we love training every day and getting out of bed is super easy it's just like just not the not the case I've definitely struggled for me this the hardest things I've had is dealing with injuries not necessarily the injuries themselves but the baggage that comes with an injury and being inside and not being able to train and seeing your teammates going out and doing exactly what you want to be doing but you can't because you're inside and you're spend most of the time on your own and you don't want to put your hand up and say that you're struggling because you're, the idea is that we don't. Having the injury itself is a burden on the team because you can't you can't go out and perform and you can't offer the team the results and the medals that they're looking for. A mental problem or mental health issue on top of that is just seen as another weakness and it's such a mind game elite competition in elite sport is you want to get every marginal gain over your competitor and you don't want to show a weakness in anything and you want to be the mental mentally the toughest on the start line by speaking out it is starting become okay about it it is just a case of like you say just having the bravery to put your hand up and and say that something's not not okay and a couple of years ago I actually wrote a blog about it just basically just wrote about the feel like how you feel when you're injured and everything and the head coach at the time came up to me and he'd read the blog it had gone quite big on twitter and he'd, he'd he'd come across it and he'd read it and he came up to me and asked me to take it down he felt as though was insulting him and insulting the program in my blog i hadn't pointed the finger at anybody it was all just it was mainly just about how you were made to feel so they can't argue with how i feel because that's how i feel he didn't once ask what he could do to make things better he didn't ask how i was he was just so worried that this blog was out there for people to read that it was going to be seen as a bad light on him i didn't take it down because i told him i'd already gone too many people had already read it so it would have made a difference (laughs) good for you went viral too fast i suppose that's the whole point that's why we wanted to do the podcast isn't it is to debunk those myths that you know an athlete springs out of bed in the morning is like do you know what i want to do today i want to pin training to the wall you pin training to the wall and you sort of swag around feeling great all day and like and the same with people in business you know they wake up in the morning and think 
today I'm going to be super successful and I'm going to make loads of money and you know spring out of bed and into the office and just go shake everyone's hand and they're breezing through meetings like it's just taking it in their stride. Behind the scenes actually there's a lot more going on and they struggle in the same ways normal people do and if anything they find it even harder to talk and show that because they feel the pressure from other people to keep up that facade. Yeah a part of me really kind of wished I'd set up a GoPro and the kitchen because that's where I've been training on the row machine and there are de- there have been days where I've literally laid on the floor next to the ergo and it's taking me a good two hours to actually get on it and do the session slowly crawled from the floor to maybe sitting on the seat to maybe setting the screen up and my housemate has just been like you've been in here for three hours and you haven't started yet <laughs> Vicky just says that all the time. She's like, you faff so much. Yeah, because like some mornings I wake up and I'm not like, do you know what? I cannot wait to run 30k today. Um, I've got a quick question for you, Sam. So with the food, how is your relationship with food now? I did a couple of things originally um, to, to help. I had a bunch of CBT therapy. That doesn't make sense because the T in CBT stands for therapy. What chopper. <laughs> you know worked out what some of the things were that triggers for me so so one of the big things is i'm like a very numerical person weighing myself was actually one of the most dangerous things that i could do i stopped weighing myself one thing that i struggled with was like getting myself to to like cook a proper meal i actually i spent a a big chunk of time eating like pre-prepared meals so kind of like ready meals but not microwave meals um like the ones you get from the supermarket that you you put in the oven oh yeah yeah. just because i knew that if i had those in the fridge every single evening i could make myself eat one i knew that it would be like a proper meal's worth of food and if i cooked a bunch of vegetables like with it on the side that actually was like a quite a low involvement low effort way of making sure that you know i was having one like full-on proper balanced meal i found that like to get myself back on back on track i had to do some pretty more extreme things but i had to like very much change the way that i was operating i've got back into a, a much healthier relationship with with food i wouldn't say that it's it's perfect by any means i would say i still have to there's still a certain level of discipline involved in kind of making sure that i eat properly and i do go through phases where you know think oh it would just be so much easier to to not eat this meal on on the whole i I would say yeah my relationship is is a lot better and i'm a lot more comfortable indulging unhealthy food quote quote unquote not unhealthy food but like food that you you shouldn't eat all the time type food without feeling guilty yeah Um, Instagram's really bad for that. People posting like cheat meals, cheat food, and it's not cheating. Like you can eat it. That's okay. The language is quite causes quite a lot of issues sometimes. You know, like oh, I earned this on the bike today. You you don't have to earn your food. Like you can eat what you want, and that's okay. Yeah, that's one of the huge downsides of social media is that the people posting their messages like they don't mean any harm by it at all they just don't quite understand what it's like from someone on the other side of the lens and that's the same with like the people posting like loads of shirtless shots of them training you know like that's fine because you're in good shape and you look great running the people that have to look at that that are shamed by that and find it really difficult to take it in people that most affected by it and it's that rose-tinted lens of social media isn't it where 
people are just trying to inspire people and spread the right messages, but some people are just going about it in slightly the wrong way. Yeah. I find even Strava, to be honest, can be a bit of a negative. Oh, I think that app should be deleted. Yeah. I've got like four friends that use Strava and a lot of you are constantly comparing yourselves. I don't use it as much as a comparison to other people. My favourite feature of Strava is the heat map and Brock will tell you this because I took him on some pretty ropey roads in Lanzarote <laughs> just so we could so we could get him ticked off the heat map. Purely for the heat map. I use it just to explore and connect with people now but yeah, I definitely went through a phase where it was very unhealthy. More when I was in Bath and was struggling with food as well everything was a comparison you know it's how many watts are people holding how fast are they going how many meters have they climbed and and Zwift is the new software that is bad for that and everyone says I'm really salty about it but I think the reality is people are waving their willies around on Zwift and making people feel like they aren't training well or aren't fast enough blah 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 when the whole idea of Zwift is created to bring people together through the winter months when they can't and, you know, I've ridden with some of my friends in the Netherlands and um, I rid, rode with a guy in Belgium that I know quite well. It's like it brings you together. You can catch up. You can you can get what you can't get. It's fantastic if you're testing yourself and trying to get a good race out of it. But as soon as you start comparing yourself to everyone else, it's also so dangerous. Yeah, I'm really glad they haven't developed anything like that for rowing yet. Talk me through the thought process here. You're in your final year, disillusioned with uni, you don't, you hate it, you're just drinking all the time. So you think, do you know what, I'm going to do a PhD. So what actually happened was for my master's research project, I decided that I'd kill two birds with one stone and I'd do my research project on something to do with cycling. The plan being that while all my mates were like in the concrete lab measuring loads that you could apply to concrete, I could go out and ride my bike. It would be training, but then I could use my power data as my data collection because I'm a bit of a loser. I actually got massively obsessed with all of the data and then started doing some actual legitimate kind of analysis work on cycling related stuff, kind of getting put in touch with British cycling um, kind of related to the to the work that I was doing and then that meant that when I graduated I actually started working at British Cycling as a consultant computer modeling of athletes over the kind of course of a few weeks or months we ended up like churning through a couple of different options of of how kind of some some setup could look where I was continuing the work that I was doing for them uh, as a consultant but on a more permanent basis and we kind of basically wound up on me uh, doing a PhD in Cambridge where they've got decent research hub. So after we'd agreed that and kind of sorted out all the details, then I yeah got a job as a ski instructor um, in Hakuba in Japan and ended up moving out to Japan for <laughs> almost nine months. So you went from not wanting to leave the South and move to Manchester to moving to Japan? No, it's, it's different, you see, because... <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> because I was never I was never permanent I was never permanently moving to Japan. I was just I was just going on an adventure. How was Japan? Mate, Japan was was absolutely great. I did one of these like gap year type schemes where you you sign up and you go out and you like sit your ski instructor exam as soon as you arrive and then you end up working as a ski instructor for the ski season spent four months living in this little lodge with a bunch of great people working as a ski instructor i did not i did not enjoy being a ski instructor very much at all 
we'd uh we were all like towards the end of the season sitting our level two instructor exams and so that meant that that we had these like ski lessons with the like instructor trainers from the ski school they were all australian and a couple of them were just like nicest blokes ever top top fun like really good time and we used to have all these stupid games like if anyone left their ski poles unattended like stuck into the floor then you'd get your own poles and you'd take a massive baseball swing at them and hit them as far away as you possibly could great fun game like when everyone is getting involved because you don't want to leave your poles unattended otherwise they're getting spanked very very far (laughs) away anyway uh, the lead instructor trainer was called Demelza. She was not as fun as Trent and Shane were as instructor trainers. She didn't teach us that much, and so it was a bit of a novelty having a Demelza lesson. And <laughs> so we all we all rocked up at the beginning. Demelza cruises in like nice nice little parallel stop, looking all looking all pro. Goes on, sticks her poles down in the snow unattended. <laughs> So like any self-respecting person would do in that situation, I absolutely lampooned them as far as I could across the piste. And anyway, Demelza didn't take to this very kindly. And she was kind of like, go and get my poles. And I was like, I'm not getting your poles because it's part of the game. I was made to apologize to Demelza for me hitting her poles across the snow. And when I apologized, I said, Demelza, I'm really sorry that you don't have a sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) So that went down like a lead balloon. Fast forward like two days, I got called into the office of the ski school manager, ended up getting fired from ski school (laughs) with a couple of weeks of the season remaining, which actually was a massive blessing because it meant I didn't have to teach skiing anymore. And so I was free to, to go and ski when I wanted to and they couldn't boot me out of the accommodation. So everything was fantastic. <laughs> wow. There you go. <sighs> so yeah, Demelza, if you're listening, no regrets. What's the craziest thing you've purchased, excluding a bike when a girl breaks up with you or you break up with a girl? I got drunk about two weeks ago and spent 190 quid on Serrano ham. <laughs> <laughs> My mum will kill me. <laughs> That's 100% good in the podcast. <laughs> You know, just doing my bit to support the local economy. How much ham did you get? Uh, probably like ten portions, maybe. It was very good ham. It was it was very delicious ham. Was it worth one hundred ninety quid? Absolutely not a chance. <laughs> <laughs> if you were at a market, what would you have paid for it? I would have felt ripped off if I was in Waitrose and paid more than thirty quid for that volume of ham. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie, I was expecting you to say like you got given a pig or like a couple of pigs. <laughs> when you told that story, I thought you know when you go to like you know when we're in Spain and we're going to supermarket and there's them like legs hanging? I thought you'd bought one of them. Uh, it was it was one of them, but not the whole thing. It was just like a few slices off it. I was just thinking about any extravagant purchases and this isn't one of mine but this was one of my dad's he was at some like yeah he was at a rugby charity dinner and it obviously had way too much to drink and they had the auction on my dad paid ten thousand pound for like to own the leg of a horse a live horse yeah it was an alive horse it was like a race horse and they were literally like a serrano ham (laughs) <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. This horse is still alive and I think it was a racehorse. Couldn't believe it when he told us because we obviously like me and my sister used to ride when we were younger. Never in a million years 
would he have would he have spent ten thousand pound on on a full horse for either of us? But drunk, he spent ten thousand pounds on a leg. How if your dad has ten thousand pounds to just throw at a horse's leg? Well, he didn't. Well, he did. He, he didn't because my mum made him go the next day. Go and apologise. Remove his bid. <laughs> is that is that even an option? Are you allowed to do that? So Mick Courtier owes ten thousand pounds authority. Potentially, yeah. Brock, if you could tell your younger self one thing, what would it be? Probably, I'd tell myself, as of three weeks ago, don't buy so much ham. <laughs> That's uh, probably the most most useful piece of advice in, in recent weeks that should have been adhered to. Uh, yeah, so don't spend £190 on ham. Brock, thanks for being a great guest and um, wasting two hours of your life talking to us. Oh, thanks very much for having me. And uh, yeah, if you enjoyed this, hit me up on Instagram. Oh, cheeky plug. Yeah, do you want to shout yourself out? <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> At Brocky Sam. <laughs> no, nah, don't. Hit me up on Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> like and subscribe. Thanks, Sam. Uh, thanks, Jack. Thanks, Sam. Been good fun talking to you. Well, there we are. That was probably definitely the most insightful chat we've had yet. Uh, what were your takeaways, Sam? I think for me, it was just, it was a really personal chat about a topic that is very rarely spoken about and something that we all believe needs to be addressed a lot more publicly because I imagine there are a lot of people facing the same challenges that, that Sam's had to and we just want to just start eliminating the stigma that comes with that. and. I think Sam just highlighted the importance of opening up about these things and finding help. And he, I mean, he said how difficult that was for him, but the benefits it had afterwards. Yeah, I think we hear that quite regularly, don't we? That it's, it is so hard to, to talk about these things, but the more we do, the more people that can be helped. The main thing for me was how easy it was to overlook the struggles that people go through. Like, you don't know what other people are going through. From the start of that episode, like I know Sam very well, and from the outside, it's really easy to think that he's had a very smooth ride, it's been very easy, it's always just, always just been on a plate for him. But he's faced some really, really tough times. And yeah, behind the scenes, you don't always know what people are going through, so it is always good to check on your friends and it's back to that be kind thing isn't it like don't judge someone you don't know and i think yeah it's a really powerful chat so really really want to thank sam for having that conversation with us yeah i just echo what you say i think you we're just so fortunate that he felt comfortable to talk to us about those sorts of things um if you enjoyed the episode uh please leave us a review like subscribe all the things it's and if there's any anything else you want to add to it um if you've got any comments people that you'd like us to get on then please just let us know yeah let's get the conversation started bye